0: welcome to the podcast whiskey and a map stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them i'm your host michael reinhardt it has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey a desire to go and see the world's wild places you're invited to pull up a chair pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends Just returned from the field. Welcome back to the podcast. We have with us today Dr. Adrian McCollum, who is a remote area field scientist and engineer. He holds a PhD from the Scott Polar Research Institute, University of Cambridge, and additional degrees in oceanography, meteorology, and civil engineering. During 20 years of service with the Australian Defense Forces, he served in numerous capacities, such as helicopter navigator, meteorologist, and civil engineer, and he has led or participated in scientific expeditions around the globe. These expeditions have included Antarctica, the Arctic, the Himalayas, and the Patagonia, and he is often referred to as the scientist adventurer. Adrian, the scientist adventurer, that's quite a moniker. What does that mean to you, scientist adventurer?
1: Hi, Mike. Look, uh, great to be speaking with you. Look, I was speaking about this with some colleagues yesterday and, um, you know, first and foremost, perhaps I was an adventurer. I wanted to go and do adventures because, you know, of the satisfaction that it gave me. And, and look, I acknowledge that often adventuring is a selfish pursuit and, uh, but, you know, that's just how it is. Um, but as I've evolved and matured, uh, I perhaps was always a scientist. I mean, I, I formalised my training as a scientist maybe 30 years ago now with my initial science degree. Uh, and then, of course, do more beyond that. But um, now I rarely adventure without having the, the premise of science underpinning my adventures. You know, I, I rarely adventure just because. I might take my kids on an adventure, but, you know, I will point out the the world to them as we, as we go. But any major adventures that I'm now planning, uh, you know, I still enjoy being out there and, and pushing myself physically, but increasingly I'm not prepared to do that in isolation. I really want to be founded on A scientific question, or what I'm more about, I suppose, is acknowledging that there are vast data gaps across many fields around the world. Uh, And I like to, you know, posit myself, I suppose, as someone who could be utilized to go and get those data, which otherwise we may not get. So that's probably what I like doing filling the data gaps, whether it's, you know, um, atmospheric land or, you know, oceanographic data gaps uh, at places around the world.
0: Growing up in Australia, were you always an adventurous kid?
1: Look, I think I was. Uh, I was always interested in how things work. And, of course, that's, you know, led me to uh, a a teaching degree, at least in engineering and and a bit of practice as an engineer. Uh, And I was fortunate, my parents, you know, uh, that they always did take us adventuring, you know, inverted commas. We weren't climbing mountains. We weren't, you know, crossing deserts necessarily, but we were always going uh, what we would call bushwalking in Australia or, you know, trail walking or um, backpacking in some you know, wonderfully scenic areas like the Blue Mountains west of Sydney, which is, is a very um, you know, popular tourist destination. So yes, I, I was fortunate that from a young age, I was supported to you know, be outdoors, adventuring. I started skiing at a young age, so I've always liked the alpine environment. So I've certainly had some great support there from my parents over the years, yeah.
0: And you developed an interest, I think, early on in polar exploration.
1: Yeah, look, that's a good question. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I can't pin down exactly where my polar intrigue started, but um, certainly I was into mountaineering in my late teens. When I was uh, at high school, I was fortunate to win an academic prize for something, and, and I chose a book called White Limbo, and White Limbo was a book that described the first Australian ascent of Mount Everest And of course, Everest was first climbed in 53, but the first Australian ascent wasn't until 1984. So I I received this book, uh, which described the first Australian ascent up the north, uh, the north face, uh, the Norton Couloir. So a fascinating new route by a small team done in alpine style. And that certainly captivated me. And I remember going to a world exposition, Expo 88 in Brisbane, Australia in 1988, and I listened to uh, Tim McCartney Snape, who was the first Australian to climb Everest. He gave a talk on that expedition, and alongside him, actually, was a, a British polar explorer called Robert Swan. So I think from that day onwards, in the late 80s, uh, adventure, to my mind, was uh, you know an intertwining of alpine and polar expeditions, and that's probably where my polar intrigue began.
0: Twenty years in the Australian Defence Forces.
1: My military career was was tainted positively early on by what I would call the old and bolds. These were men, uh, primarily, who weren't that much older than me. They were probably in their mid thirties, but they were certainly mentors to me. And they'd just come back from an Everest expedition in '88 uh, and previous Himalayan trips before that. So my initial military training was, um, uh, you know, was occurring in parallel with training in the arts of rock climbing and of mountaineering etc so my stories that I I learned in my early military days weren't necessarily of, of combat or battle because fortunately you know things have been fairly dormant for Australian Defence Forces at that time but they were of conquering peaks and the like so yes as my military career progressed I probably wasn't one who wanted to become General McCallum or Admiral McCallum I wanted to become you know mountaineer or adventurer McCallum so I was very fortunate that uh, the military gave me the opportunity to pursue that. Perhaps like the American military, when you're trying to train groups of people to work together in uh, intense and harsh environments, and and there's no combat going on, which which of course is a good thing, then we need to develop opportunities when um, groups and individuals can practice and learn those skills. So in Australia, it's called adventurous training. So we take groups out rock climbing or paddling or climbing mountains, etc. So I was very fortunate to be supported to do lots of adventurous training uh, with the military, which culminated in a number of Himalayan trips, et cetera. Uh, And, you know, we could talk forever. It's one of those things that that it's certainly stuck with me over the last 30 now, almost 40 years, and it's it's now the sort of training that I like to bring out in my university teaching to immerse people in those sort of environments where they learn both as an individual and as a team um, many skills that can be useful in managing themselves and others throughout the rest of their lives.
0: Your service in the Australian Defence Forces eventually gave you an opportunity to go to Everest, did it not?
1: Yes, it did. Look, because I joined the military very soon after, you know, I, I acquired that book, which was quite influential the book White Limbo. When I joined the military, it was 1989. The Army had just had an expedition to Everest in 1988, the Australian Bicentennial Everest Expedition. Uh, And so hot on the heels of that, for better or worse, I was a very young 17-year-old officer cadet in the Air Force. And I started writing letters to majors in the army who'd just come back from that expedition saying, I've just joined the military. I'd love to initiate another Everest expedition. And they, of course, would have sighed and thought, who is this young bloke? We've just come back from Everest. But to their credit, they you know, put pen to paper. They wrote back to me and they encouraged me and said, well, we can help you progress that. So Again, I was very fortunate that these old and bolds in the Australian Army supported my desire to climb Everest, even though I'd I'd just joined the military and it was to be some time down the track. And of course, we were approaching the 50th anniversary of the first ascent. That would have been in 2003. So my first inclination was to mount an expedition to climb Everest in 2003 as the 50th anniversary expedition. And I was 10 years out. I thought I had a pretty good uh, chance of, of nabbing that opportunity. But quite rightly, the old and bold said to me, Adrian, look, I think the British and the New Zealand and the Nepalese uh, governments, et cetera, they might be supporting similar expeditions and they'll probably be much larger than ours. So perhaps we'll we'll reframe that. So we ended up aiming for the year 2001. So we spent the next 10 years essentially putting that expedition together. And, you know, my military career took me to lots of different places, doing lots of different things. uh, And and life tends to, you know, intermingle, of course, and perhaps get in the way of these things. But... um, In early 2000s, I was in the Navy flying helicopters as a navigator or serving as a meteorologist in the Navy. And I was fortunate to be given the Guernsey the the opportunity to be the Navy climber on the 2001 um, Centennial Everest Expedition. So after more than 10 years, it certainly uh, finally came to be, which was a great experience.
0: Can you tell us about that experience on the mountain?
1: Yes, for sure. So um, look, Everest was something i have been aiming for for 10 years, so it was a big thing to finally be on an Everest expedition. I thought, this is fantastic. I've been wanting to do this since I was, you know, 16 or 17 when I when I first picked up that book. But, you know, as I've recounted to you before, that the trip, you know, some may deem it successful. We got to the summit or some of us got to the summit, which was great, so the expedition was successful. But uh, the expedition was really a tragedy, uh, and that was because we had three people killed in an acclimatisation trek in the Annapurna Sanctuary. And one of those killed was an eight-year-old girl. So, so look, they were trying times, of course, uh, you know. So I look back on the Everest expedition as a turning point in my life. Um, I, you know, I, I don't have any regrets. It was what it was. Uh, it was most unfortunate that um, people from our group were killed and a couple of Israeli trekkers were also killed at that time. Um, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. So. Uh, yeah, look, that, that was a pivotal point in my life, Mike, and, and made me change my career essentially and took me down the path that has led me to be where I am today. So I remember, you know, it was, it was funny. I used to view Everest as this grand thing that I wanted to climb, but after that accident I viewed it just as a pile of snow-covered rocks and why would people jeopardise their life just to climb a pile of snow-covered rocks? But, um, you know, it still inspires many and inspiration is a good thing and, look, it's still, you know, something that I'd like to perhaps ascend but more likely probably hopefully do some science you know, with or on one day. So although, you know, that uh, Everest expedition was a tragic turning point in my life, I can't deny that, you know, um, Everest still looms large as as a potential research opportunity down the track.
0: Now, this may be a bit painful, but as you say, it was a turning point in your life. Can you describe how that accident happened?
1: Yeah, so look, um, it, it you know, it was to some extent because KC, the little girl, uh, I got on really well with KC. We would, you know, I would read her stories and I'd give her piggybacks upstairs and carry a pack every now and again, whatever it was. So we got on really well. We were staying at um, Machapachari Base Camp, which is the um, the set of the village, I suppose, of little camp just down from Annapurna Base Camp. It's where you normally uh, stay and do a day trip up to Annapurna Base Camp and back. Anyway, we beat been up to Annapurna Base Camp, and we were now planning to descend down the valley back to Chomrong. But the valley gets tight, uh, quite tight there through the Modi Kola Gorge. The Modi Kola is the river, uh, and the the cliffs close in on either side. And it's a bit of a shoot there. Four avalanches, which come off the mountain here in Chuli, which is to the western side. It's six and a half, six seven uh, thousand meters, something like that. And it is a known avalanche area. Uh, and, and some of us knew that, and perhaps we should have thought about that a bit more. Um, so we were descending through that area. It was the month of uh, April, uh, and most of the group, the, the climbers from the, the Defence Forces descended first. We got away at 8am or 7am in the morning um, before things started warming up, before there would be any avalanche danger. But, uh, you know, if you have children, you know that, you know, corralling children to get them going at a certain time is difficult, so... For various reasons, uh, Casey and her family, they left They left later than that uh, and they started descending perhaps mid-morning. And they got to the avalanche area perhaps midday, of course, you know, potentially one of the worst times of the day, lots of sun, uh, melting snow and ice, and, and tragically an ice avalanche came down off he and surely and essentially killed them, you know, hopefully instantaneously, masses of ice, tonnes of ice. Uh, and, of course, um, we were... Uh, further ahead. In fact, we were actually up at Annapurna Base Camp, I apologise. We'd gone up there for the day while they descended before us. So we weren't aware of this tragedy. Uh, we weren't carrying radios at the time. Um, it wasn't until we returned to Machapatari Base Camp at the end of that day that we realised that uh, the tragedy had occurred. It was probably 5pm, um, night time was descending. The avalanche zone was two or three hours walk further down the track. So there was not too much we could do immediately. So I think we spent most of the night getting prepared with shovels and axes and torches and, and water and first aid, etc. and then I think maybe um, soon after midnight, it might have been 2, 3 a.m., we left to go down to the site so that we could start searching at first light. So we started searching for their bodies and uh, we spent the day there. Um, unfortunately, fruitlessly, we could find nothing. You know, there were blocks of ice the size of Volkswagen Beetles. You know, there was uh, a mass of material there that was very difficult to to move up, move over, or across, uh, let alone find anyone. And, and tragically, also the ice had come down the mountain and swept into the river, which wasn't too far away. Yeah. So there was potential for bodies to have been swept into the river. So look, at the end of that day, uh, the expedition leader uh, called us together and said, I, "I think we're on a fruitless task here. Uh, if they if they were alive, they probably wouldn't be alive now. It was cold. Um, um, they, you know, all the bodies were apparently covered in, in ice and snow." So tragically, he said, I think we need to stop this search uh, and call in the authorities, which was the Nepalese mountain rescue folk, and, and they were due to come the following day to um, uh, resume that search. So we, uh, we had to, you know, close that off to some extent, bring closure to that event. So we had a brief ceremony under a rock, essentially, um, beside the river near that avalanche zone, um, paying our thoughts and respects and prayers for the, the people who we had lost. And then the next day, reluctantly, we, we put our packs on our backs and we headed down the valley, uh, acknowledging that um, we were, for better or worse, progressing with the expedition. The Nepalese authorities were going to send their experts in to try and retrieve bodies from the site. And we went back to the town of Pokhara for, for certainly a night of reflection. And and then the next day we flew back to Kathmandu to uh, you know reflect further, of course, uh, and contemplate both individually and as a group, what was going on with the expedition, were we going to continue to Everest or were we not? And look, as it turned out, we did decide en masse to continue to Everest, but while we were having those deliberations uh, that night in Kathmandu, news came through that um, the Nepalese rescue authorities had recovered the bodies or had found the bodies. They'd identified the bodies and found them in the ice, at least two of them, um, Casey and her mother. And because I was particularly uh, close to KC and I, I really, you know, I was touched by by what had occurred, uh, I was affected by it, I wanted to make sure that we could safely shepherd their bodies down from the mountains. So I said to the expedition leader, is it okay if I go back to the site? And he said yes. So through the Australian embassy, I think I found a, a local bus that was going overnight to Popora. So I jumped on the local bus, took the bus overnight back to Popora, and um, jumped in a helicopter which was going up to the site with the Himalayan Rescue Authorities, and, and I was very fortunate to be able to step out onto the, the scene and um, and recover the bodies of Casey and her mother, so bring them into the helicopter and then escort them back to Pokhara and then back to Kathmandu via helicopter. Uh, unfortunately, Peter, the other Australian, Peter Zapula, he at that time hadn't been found. It turned out that uh, I think his backpack was found in the river later on, but uh, we, we didn't find Peter at that time. But I got back to Kathmandu and then with some of my climbing colleagues, we you know, we spent a few hours wandering Kathmandu, gathering flowers and, and scarves, et cetera, just so that we could do you know, a very small tokenistic thing but just to try and, you know, unfortunately, of course, they were dead, but we wanted to make sure that they were presented in a way that showed that, uh, you know, they were still loved for and cared for uh, in that state. So, um, uh, you know, we left them lying, hopefully, you know, in peace in Kathmandu. Uh, and then we had a another service uh, a day or so later in Kathmandu, uh, a more formal service, uh, and then, you know, to some extent we laid them to rest uh, in our minds, or at least in my mind. We brought them off the mountain and they were put in an Air Force Hercules aircraft and flown back to Australia for memorial services, etc. Uh, but while that occurred, we were on our way to um, Zangmu to Tibet, uh, and then onwards to Everest. So, look, I was I, I was fortunate that. Um, that act I suppose for me was was almost closure I suppose all I really wanted to do was make sure that they were you know carefully you know nurtured down from the mountain and 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 I was fortunate to be able to do that Uh, but for many others you know they carried that with them of course I didn't have children at the time others did have children to see a young girl killed in that manner impacted them and their their desire to continue on the expedition so yeah, it was uh, it was a uh, you know not a very flavoursome start to the trip. Uh, certainly very tragic, but um, twenty years uh, later now, uh, you know, I look back on it as a learning experience. Um, you know, it certainly has impacted me and, and the way I've now uh, led my life. But um, you know, um, life moves on and and we are where we are. And um, yeah, as I said, it, it certainly helped me pivot. It made me pivot my professional career, and I like to think that some of what I do these days is, is useful to try and stop those sort of things happening again.
0: Adrian, thanks for sharing that with us. I know it's still a painful memory for you, but the reason why I wanted to go into that is the direction of your life significantly changed at that time. How did it change?
1: Yeah, look, uh, so obviously I, I was fortunate to you know be intimately involved in the recovery and I thought, wow, for a little while I thought there must be a, a, a service globally where people need to be recovered in a, in a civilised and sympathetic manner. And I had thoughts of, you know, initiating a body recovery service to do that for people who couldn't be on site to, to do that. But um, look, that, that didn't eventuate. But what did eventuate was my desire um, to learn more about snow mechanics essentially the strength of snow and ice, how we can measure that, how we can monitor um, slopes for potential avalanches. So at the end of 2001, I started an engineering degree. So only a couple of months coming back from Everest, I um, started studying civil engineering by correspondence initially. The following year, I was fortunate I went travelling for the year with my wife, a bit of soul-searching, trying to work out what I was going to do with my time. I turned 30 on Everest and I was thinking about the future. I came back without any, you know, um, epiphanies uh, necessarily, but I then transferred to the Australian Army and I was fortunate that they supported me through the last two years of my engineering degree. And during my research project as part of my degree, I started studying the strength of snow and ice in Antarctica. Um, Australia had a new ice runway there and I was investigating the management and the movement of that runway. And then soon thereafter, I, I had to complete my time of service with the army of course and and I spent time doing various things across various parts of Australia but um, I really wanted to become an expert in snow and ice and to become an expert to my mind was to you know obtain a PhD qualification to prove that I was you know sufficiently educated in that particular field so I started looking for support mechanisms to take me to places around the world where I might study snow and ice and I was very fortunate to um, obtain a Menzies scholarship um, which um, sent me to Scott Polar Research Institute at the University of Cambridge to study the strength of snow and ice. So, look, I was fortunate. Things fell in in place for me, Mike, and enabled me to pursue that uh, desire to become an expert in snow and ice strength. Yeah. In
0: 2011, you became a member of the Caitlin Arctic Survey. And I've read that in your mind, at least, that is maybe one of your most uh, memorable expeditions. Is that correct?
1: Yes, it is, Mike. Look, the Catalan Arctic Survey, again, you know, I was fortuitous to be involved in that um, that opportunity, that expedition. I was wrapping up my PhD in England and uh, I'd just come back from Antarctica, gathering my data um, down there. And an email popped into my inbox somewhere between Boxing Day and New Year's saying, scientists wanted for Arctic expedition. And I tell this story regularly to groups. Uh, of course, I, I I, I didn't discuss anything with my wife at this time. I, you know, I almost plied with the you know, yes, pick me. Uh, and then I, I went, of course, and asked my wife later. But what turned out is I went and had a pint with the fellow who was organising this trip. They had a Russian scientist who was meant to proceed on this trip as the scientist. But um, unfortunately, at the last minute, he couldn't attend. So they were putting out a, an 11th hour call for a scientist to join this group on a two month skiing traverse from the North Pole towards Greenland. I went and had a pint with this chap in London after an evening and subsequent discussions, I was on the team. And then only a month or so later, I found myself essentially at the North Pole. So it was a fantastic experience. Uh, I was very fortunate to be selected as as the scientist because I, I was really only just finishing my PhD. I, I was only, well, I wouldn't have called myself a real scientist. I was still a scientist in training. But um, I had sufficient field skills, of course, from my time in the Himalaya, Antarctica and, and various other places to be very useful in the field. And that's what I what I still do today, Mike. You know, I like to think I'm a real scientist. I do do real science, but I'm also fortunate to have a basis of useful field skills that enable me to be at the very sharp end of adventure and being in the field whilst collecting useful data from those places, as I said before, that perhaps others may not be able to obtain data from. So the Catlin Arctic Survey, sure, great trip. It was um, 10 days, sorry, 10 weeks away, two and a half months we did an initial training trip in the northern uh, Canadian Arctic, and we did that training trip because, as you'd expect, if you're bringing uh, people together from different parts of the world to work as an intimate team in a harsh environment, then uh, you can be sure that things won't go well unless you give them the opportunity to work out how each of them work together uh, and put systems and routines in place. So. We did that in mid-March of 2011 in temperatures that were probably in the minus 40s. So for me, coming from Australia, now on the Sunshine Coast, they were pretty cold temperatures to be living in a tent and operating day-to-day, dragging sledges. But um, the first 10 days went well. We practised our routines and uh, got ourselves established as a group. Then we ended up going back to Resolute in uh, northern Canada where we prepared for the, the main phase of the expedition, which was to be a ski traverse from the North Pole towards Greenland for about two months towing our supplies, I was towing a radar as well. Uh, I was a scientist on the trip, and I was uh, with three other people. We had a filmmaker, and we had uh, Ann Daniels, who's a polar guide from the UK, and Tyler Fish, who's a polar guide from the US. So experienced people, great people, a great team.
0: What was the purpose of the expedition?
1: Sure. So the purpose was to um, collect oceanographic data from under the sea ice uh, in areas where oceanographic data hadn't previously been collected and certainly not in that time of year, and also to measure both ice thickness and snow thickness on top of the ice. Um, So ice thickness, you can understand, it's it's very sensible to understand where the multi-year sea ice is and where the thin ice is and how it moves over time. But what may not be quite so clear is why we need to know the snow thickness. We need to know the snow thickness on the ice because satellites these days, of course, regularly try and assess the thickness of the sea ice. But the the beams from the satellite, there's still uncertainty as to what they're reflecting off, whether they're reflecting off the snow surface or the ice surface. So we need to make sure that um, we know the thickness of the snow on the ice so that we can essentially calibrate the satellites. If we can ground truth the satellites by getting those data from, from the surface of the ice and the snow, then we can have much more um, um, confidence, I suppose, in the data that the satellite satellites subsequently give us. So it was essentially ground truthing satellite data whilst we travelled from the North Pole towards Greenland. So doing oceanography as well as sea ice thickness verification.
0: Even with satellites, you still need boots on the ground to make sure it's it's all being measured right.
1: Yeah, exactly right. You know, look, I'm I'm satellites certainly give us wonderful data. You know, uh, across vast distances, across vast periods of time that we just couldn't hope to achieve uh, on foot. But as you say, you know, unless we can validate those data by ground truthing it, then then unfortunately it's useless. So we do need to validate it at least initially uh, to make sure that what the satellite is saying is what is actually the case. So uh, and that's the small niche role I suppose that I I like to try and fit into that. Um, I can be the person on the ground to try and do that ground truthing. I mean, there are many others who do that, uh, but it hadn't been done at this particular location at this particular time. So that was, you know, one of the main reasons um, for the expedition, yeah.
0: Now, the expedition started at the North Pole?
1: Well, it started just south of the North Pole, unfortunately. When we were in Resolute preparing to depart for the pole, there was very bad weather across the high Arctic at that time. So I think we were uh, the only expedition of about six that uh, eventually had a weather window to be flown uh, to the North Pole. Um, we flew up there with a company called Ken Boric Air, a Canadian company who operate in the Arctic and Antarctica. Uh, and Ken Boric unfortunately, had lost an aircraft through the sea ice the year before, so they were very wary of landing on unproven sea ice. So we had to fly up in one large aircraft, a Basler, which is a modified DC-3, and we also had a smaller Twin Otter aircraft go ahead of us. And the twin otter would land on the ice and they would jump out and measure the thickness of the ice to validate that it was thick enough for the larger aircraft to then come and land on. So it was quite a logistical exercise to get us uh, to the vicinity of the pole. I think we were about 30 or 40 miles south um, because of the bad weather. Uh, once we landed there, we were fortunate we did, the uh, at the time, the most northerly live broadcast uh, with CNN, telling them essentially what we were doing. Uh, assessing the you know, the oceanography and the um, sea ice nature of the high Arctic. Uh, and then we waved goodbye to the camera crews and everyone else, and it was just the four of us, essentially at the pole. Temperatures, I don't know, minus 30, minus 40, somewhere there with 120 kilogram sledge behind us. And there was only one way to go, and that was south, of course. So um, off we set.
0: After you stepped off that plane, all the gears taken off, and you see the plane go away, and it's just the four of you. Mm. For someone who had a life time fascination with polar exploration. How'd you feel?
1: Look, I, I had um, conflicting uh conflicting emotions, I would say. A, it was great to be there because I was fulfilling, you know, something I'd want to do for a long time. You know, one thing we didn't mention was when I was in pilot's course with the Air Force 20 years before then, I'd written to Sir Ranolph Fiennes, who is In the Guinness Book of Records, described as the world's greatest living explorer. And I'd written to Sir Ranoff to say, Hey, Sir Ranoff, how can I be a polar explorer? He'd written back to me, and here I was 20 years later, almost to my mind, being a polar explorer. So that was great. I was finally perhaps fulfilling that childhood dream. But on the other hand, having just completed a 10 day training trip with this same group in temperatures of minus 45, minus 50s, I knew that it was cold and hard out there. And if I did things wrong or did things poorly, I might die. So it was quite confronting. I, I, I knew that we had a hard task ahead of us. It was like Groundhog Day. We had no rest days. Every day was dragging heavy sledges over pressure ridges and then after dragging our sledges for eight or nine hours, then my work as a scientist would start. So two to three hours of drilling and lowering instruments through the ice before I could then, you know, hit the camp for the night, have something to eat, go to sleep, get up and do it again. So I knew that what was to come was... It wasn't a holiday. Uh, it wasn't a, a temporary field camp. It was a long, almost two-month uh, endurance effort. So I knew I had to be mentally robust to, um, to to hunker down and just get on with it. Yeah,
0: extreme physical challenge, but I would say probably at least as much, if not more, a mental challenge of putting one foot in front of the other with a heavy sledge behind you. How did you cope?
1: Look, yeah, you make a great point, Mike, and that's uh, that's the point of adventurous training, which I mentioned earlier. I suppose they're always meant to be physically challenging adventures, but we're trying to develop strong minds, um, both as individuals and and for teams. So that's a that's a great question. How did I cope? Look, I'm I'm blessed to be uh, to have a good sense of humor. You know, I like to keep things light, so I tried not to get too low um, too often, which is good. And I think I just had to accept, uh, I was going to say, hey, I'm getting paid for this. I wasn't actually getting paid for that. I was a volunteer, but but that's okay. I, you know, I'd signed up for this. I wanted to be a polar explorer and here I was doing it. So I think what I tend to do these days, you know, I, I am a scientific professional. I kick in and say, well, these data that we're getting, uh, these data sets are important uh, and I think there's value in them. So I'll do what I, I can do or need to do. You know, I don't want to die up here, but I will do my damnedest to make sure that I get good data that is of use to the world down the track. And if that means me dragging a heavy sledge and getting cold every now and again for a couple of months, well, that's how it is. So I'm probably I've probably been highly trained, I think, through the military over 20 years to be quite disciplined and how I manage myself and get things done. So I suppose that just kicks in, I realize that's how it is and I get on with the job, Mike. Yeah.
0: Margin for error though is very small.
1: Yeah, it is, and and look, uh, um, I reflect on one incident on that trip, only a small incident, but I remember we were crossing a couple of floating, you know, ice flows, essentially. We were crossing what I would call a creek uh, or a stream, and again, when I talk about this trip, it's it's interesting in an Australian context, you're walking over a white landscape and you think about crossing a creek, and a creek might be, I don't know, a couple of feet deep, and you think, oh, yeah, I'll jump across the creek. If I fall in, I'll get wet feet. That's fine. But in the Arctic Ocean context, when you're crossing a lead, you know, a creek uh, that's cutting through the ice, it's, uh, it's four kilometres deep. So if you drop something in there, you're not going to get it back. And I remember on one occasion tossing a ski, I think, onto an ice floe. And it stopped there. It was fine. But Tyler, the American, said, Adrian, what are you doing? Uh, if, if that ski had have skidded and fallen in, you weren't going to get it back. And he made a very good point. You know, That, that was exactly the point. We didn't carry spare skis. So I was—I hadn't yet clicked that, yeah, that was four kilometres of ocean down there, that um, things will fall a very long way. It wasn't just a creek that I could retrieve something from. So I had to switch on, I suppose. You know, I'm, I'm fairly easygoing by nature. But I needed to realize and it kind of slapped me in the face that, yeah, you know, in that environment, you need to be very methodical about what you do and how you do it. Because if you stuff up, if you forget to zip something up or if you lose a glove, you're on a slippery slope to death uh, and there's not much you can do about it. So you need to be very vigilant about the way you do things.
0: How did the scientific portion of that trip go?
1: Look, it went pretty well. I'm I'm fortunate we had um, instruments that... uh, I'm speaking with the instrument manufacturers now about a forthcoming trip, but the beauty of you know, some of the instruments is you could turn them on when you're in Canada and the battery life was such that you could leave them on. So I didn't have to fumble with them. I would attach them to my, my winch line, uh, which was essentially a big fishing reel on the back of my sledge. We would drill a hole and I could lower the instruments down into the ocean to maybe 100 or 500 metres uh, and bring them back up. We needed to make sure the hole remained clear because the problem is, because it was so cold, we drill a hole through the ice and if we didn't keep that hole clear, you could potentially not have a hole to bring the instruments back through if it took too long. And then we would bring the instruments into the tent at night to stop them freezing. We didn't have a means of transmitting data so we had to ensure that the you know, all the data was stored on the instruments and fortunately it was. So we got into a routine like anything. That was the whole point of the initial 10 days, I suppose, to develop routines and for the, you know, the six weeks ultimately that it was on the ice, it was just day in, day out doing the same routine. Uh, we got the science down pat. As we got further south, as you'd understand, uh, it was getting warmer and rather than having to drill through the ice, we might find leads or breaks in the ice where I could back the sledge up to to the creek, to the lead, and then lower the instrument straight into the water. So that made my life a bit easier. But, uh, yeah, now we gathered some good data, which... I hate to say it, but 10 years later, I'm still using, you know, we're still trawling through that, making sure that uh, we can, you know, let the broader scientific community be aware of what we've obtained and hopefully use that for their own studies down the track. So, uh, yeah, I think it went pretty well, Mike. Oh, your teammates? So they were great. Look, again, as you know, um, the older I get, the, the more I realize that, you know, a team, it relies so much on the people in the team and how they integrate and work together as the team. You know, we all bring technical skills to the team, but they're almost irrelevant. You can learn them from a book or the internet these days, but you must gel as a team. And we were very fortunate. We had a very open environment. and and Tyler, who are our guides, our leaders. We would debrief at the end of every day. We would try and you know eliminate tensions or you know points of friction between team members before they grew into anything too large. So. We Would you know talk about how our day was, the highs and the lows, etc.? Is anything bugging you? And we have very open forums in the tent of an evening. Um, so there was you know very little conflict on the trip. You know, we all got on really well. Phil, the cameraman, he did his job. I was the scientist, I did my job. Anna and Tyler managed us all, and they did a great job. So that's perhaps why it's uh why I look back on it very fondly. It was a very um rewarding expedition, you know, four people in the middle of nowhere essentially thousands and thousands of miles from anywhere operating as a little, you know, pod, just doing a thing across the Arctic ocean. And, and we all worked well together. We were our own little civilization and uh, things, things went well. It was a very satisfying experience. And we were, you know, of course we were far removed from the distractions of day to day. There was just us eating, sleeping, skiing, science, rinse and repeat, do it again um, for you know 50 days. So it was a very simplistic existence, which um, is quite appealing in, in this modern world.
0: As you're making your way south through those various camps, I have to imagine that there were times that you were sitting around camp, maybe walked a few paces away and looked out across all that ice, and for hundreds of miles, there's nobody. How'd that feel?
1: Look, I, it, it feels pretty good, I think. Uh, it feels remarkable that you had the opportunity to be there in that environment. There was very little wildlife. I think we had one duck low-flying past us once. We had one seal pop its head up in a lead. We saw one polar bear track. But other than that, it was just the four of us for almost two months in this uh, pristine Arctic environment. So it's, it felt very special to be there, Mike. You know, And unfortunately, not many people get to experience that, but I suppose that's what makes it so special. So I felt very fortunate, and privileged to be there, and I still do. I'm I'm very lucky that my life uh, has panned out the way it has. I've got a great supportive wife. I've got great kids, and I had the opportunity to go and do these things. So, uh, yeah, it, it was a terrific feeling. And and Daniels actually, she she's been up there many times, and she she said to me, Adrian, the Arctic will will have a hold on you. You want to come back. And I remember at the end of our first 10-day trip when it was minus 40 and and the last thing I wanted to do was go back because I just knew how cold and hard it was going to be. But after the six-week, two-month trip up there of the main expedition and we were flying home in the Twin Otter, the Twin Otter aircraft, I went, I get it, and You know, I understand what the allure of the Arctic is and maybe it's partially the Arctic but it's also probably that isolation, that removal from the demands of day-to-day civilization. The simplicity of that existence that that is really very appealing and and very few of us get to experience that so it was um yeah a special time
0: are there any close calls out there
1: look on the arctic aside from me uh, you know sillily almost losing a ski um to the bottom of the ocean no no close calls <laughs> well actually uh i reflect on that again we were fortunate uh oh. I forgot about this point at the very end of our trip of course we didn't end up going anywhere we didn't get to Greenland and that was because we were dropped across the top of Russia not Greenland in the end and as you understand when you're on the Arctic sea ice if you set up camp somewhere at night well you may not be or you won't be in that same place in the morning you might be further towards your goal or you might be further away from your goal because the Arctic sea ice is constantly drifting. So as, uh, as Tyler Fish said, we ended up going from nowhere to somewhere. You know, we went from point X to point Y, but it wasn't particularly anywhere. So we were running low on food. We were running low on gas because we'd been out there for uh, six weeks. We had originally planned to have a resupply drop uh, a month into the expedition, but because of conditions and because of costs, I think, you know, weather delays, etc., had um, tumbled things around a bit. We didn't have the resupply, so we were running low on resources. You know, um, We maybe had uh, two or three days' worth of food and fuel left. We got to our end point where we said, right, we need to call it here and get someone to come and pick us up. So we have been on the radio to Ken Barwick Air, and they'd flown a couple of days north from uh, their base in Canada via Alert, which is the northernmost Canadian base uh, in northern Canada, to then fly out to the ice to pick us up. Uh, we had to build our own airfield. But the problem is that uh, because of the pressure ridges where the ice is butting into itself all the time, trying to find a a thick enough and flat enough and long enough ice surface isn't a trivial task. So we set up our final camp. Uh, We established what we thought was a sufficiently long runway. We marked it out with bags and things. And the aircraft that had flown a few hours from alert to come and pick us up came into land. And we've got footage of this. Uh, It comes in low over the, the pressure ridge. But then, unfortunately, about five seconds five seconds later, you hear the aircraft power up and he's going around. You know, He, he didn't touch down. So as it turns out, because our runway was a bit short and had pressure ridges at both ends, the pilot, he tried maybe half a dozen times, but he just wasn't comfortable to get the aircraft down on that shorter runway. So uh, eventually he had to turn around and go back to alert because he was running low on fuel. He'd spent the whole day trying to get out to us, pick us up and go back, but it didn't happen. So... Uh, yeah, so that uh, that kind of, uh, um, you know, knocked the stuffing out of us for a bit there. Uh, in a in the true style of a British expedition, we put the tent up and we put the kettle on and we had a cup of tea. And the four of us sat there in the tent looking at each other glumly going, okay, that's interesting. Uh, here we are in the middle of the Arctic, an aircraft just tried to pick us up but, but they can't. We've got, you know, that food over there and that little pile in the corner, we've got that, msr gas bottle there that's about all we've got left so it was um it was a, you know it was a it was a fascinating discussion we sat there and i think tyler facilitated the discussion saying how do you feel and what are we going to do now and um look we came up with a plan of course uh, a couple of days beforehand we had skied across a very flat section of ice which would have been a great runway but problem with um, flat ice is it's most probably fresh ice you know it's it's first or second year ice and it's probably not thick enough to hold an aircraft but um, we didn't know that at the time we thought well let's pack up our tent and ski back to that flat ice which was maybe a day skiing back behind us we got there and uh, we got on the radio or the satellite phone to our headquarters in London and they are on the phone to the Ken Burrick headquarters in Canada who are on the radio to their pilots and Because they'd lost an aircraft through the ice before, as you'd expect, of course, Ken Borrett were very wary of landing aircraft on ice that wasn't thick enough. So they said to us, look, uh, Tyler and Phil and Adrian, the Catlin team, the ice needs to be 67 centimetres thick uh, or we won't come and pick you up. We can't land on it. So Tyler and I set out with our ice drill, which we've been using to drill holes through the ice for the last six weeks, and we started drilling through the ice and we were getting 63 centimetres and 64 centimetres and 65 centimetres, but we weren't anywhere getting the 67 centimetres. And we were relaying these uh, numbers back via radio to Ken Borick, and and they were, you know, quite rightly saying, sorry, it's not thick enough, you know, we we will not land unless the ice is 67 centimetres thick or whatever it it was. It was about 67. And, of course, that knocked the stuffing out of us for the second time because we thought, wow, we've marched a day or so back to this new supposed runway. It's perfectly long and flat. It looks great, but it's just not thick enough. So we put the set the tent up and the kettle on for the second time. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it, it was fascinating. It's a fascinating study, of course, in human behaviour and human psychology. How do you respond to getting, you know, kicked in the guts for the second time? And, of course, there's nothing to do but go, oh, well, I guess we have to... Um, I can't quite remember what the next plan was going to be. One of the plans was that we would have to get the Canadian Air Force to do a food drop via helicopter out to us uh, to sustain us for a bit longer. Um, they wouldn't have had the capacity to pick us up because they were, their range was too far. We would have been too heavy. Uh, so that they were the sort of plans, Bs and Cs and Ds that were being established. But um, then wonderfully, remarkably, like a scene out of a movie, the radio crackled into life. Uh, and who was on the radio but Troy from Texas. So Troy is a very experienced Ken Boric Air pilot. He's flown in the Arctic, Antarctica for decades, as I understand it. Great guy. Troy had taken Anne to or from the North Pole a couple of years before, so they knew each other, you know, relatively well. And the radio crackled into life, and Troy was there, and he said, hey, Anne, it's Troy here. I hear you need a lift. And uh, Troy was in the vicinity with a couple of American or Canadian scientists. They were in a twin otter. They weren't necessarily full. They still had a bit of payload that they could, you know, carry weight, uh, and that weight could potentially be us. So we weren't able to carry any of our equipment aside from the scientific instruments. Unfortunately, we had to leave our equipment on the ice. But Troy came in, landed on our very, very flat runway, which was of very thin ice. But, you know, with the experience he had, he didn't stop the aircraft. He kept the power on, and he taxied on to very thick multi-year ice where he could stopped the aircraft he kept the engines running we grabbed our gear um grabbed our diaries whatever we had jumped in the twin otter and within you know five six minutes he powers up and away we go so that was you know i haven't reflected enough on that moment but within the space of maybe half an hour 40 minutes we'd gone from a, a dire slippery slope towards who knows where and all of a sudden we were sitting in a air conditioner a heated twin otter aircraft on our way back to civilization in Canada. So it was a remarkable juxtaposition i suppose the word is between the the isolation of a remote you know encapsulated arctic uh, expedition to all of a sudden back uh, on our way to civilization so yeah it, it was a remarkable time that i as i said i have probably haven't reflected on it enough but um we were safe and sound uh, unfortunately we left some of our gear there but we had the scientific data and we we're on our way with troy back to um back to life yeah a
0: question we always ask your whiskey and a map do you have a good drinking story for us?
1: <laughs> well, look as you know, uh, in in the office behind me, I I am prone to collecting you know single malt Scotch whiskey, and I I have a collection of books there that I I grab a whiskey and I flick through them and I think, ah, what is the next expedition? Or I, I, as you say, I put the map down. Um, having although I've got a nice collection of Scotch whiskey, I like to think I don't drink too much. I'm I'm at an age where I realise that oh, I need to be careful. You know of. Um, Um, of dabbling too much but um, there was one time in 2008 Mike I just started at the Scott Polar Research Institute in Cambridge in the end of 2007 and it was now early 2008 and it was the International Polar Year and one of my colleagues at Cambridge Professor Paul Christopherson as he is now he needed a a field hand essentially a field assistant to do some work with him in Svalbard which had only been opened up um, for that polar year to do the work so I was very fortunate to pack my bags, go to Svalbard. We were doing work on the Vestfauna ice cap, which is in the north uh, east of the Svalbard archipelago. We were at, based at a historical hut called Kinvika, which is a historical hut perhaps I think it's 50-70 uh, years old, somewhere there built in the 1940s, 1950s. And we would um, base ourselves from the hut. We would travel by snowmobile or skidoo up onto the ice cap. We would then camp on the ice cap for a week or 10 days before returning to the hut occasionally, depending on weather, et cetera. And one night uh, my job was to drive the skidoo, uh, side saddle, uh, you know, GPS in one eye and with my other eye be keeping an eye on the sledge that I was towing. And on the sledge was another person, Rickard, a uh, researcher from Uppsala University in Sweden. And Rickard was our radar expert. So he had a radar that he was monitoring and we were monitoring the thickness of the ice cap. And uh, we spent maybe 18 hours, I think, one night. We left at uh, what time would it have been? Maybe it was midday. We left at midday and we started skidooing and we just kept going. We stopped the fuel every now and again, but the weather had been poor. So this was a weather window where we had to work. And, you know, scientists would realise that there are times when you just have to do the work, you know, regardless of the time. So we spent about 18 hours zigzagging up and down the Vespona ice cap, towing the GPR. Very, you know, not particularly tiring. Of course, it was cold uh, and uh, monotonous. But at the end of the um, 18 hours, we, we got the data, which was great. So it was back on the skadoos uh, to drive the two or three hours back to the Kinvica hut. And I think we got back to Kinvica about 5 or 6 a.m. It had been, as I said, a long time out on the ice. There was myself, Ricard. We were with a a Polish researcher, uh, perhaps a Welsh researcher, another Swedish researcher, and it was four or five o'clock in the morning. It was time for breakfast. Um, But the only breakfast we had at hand was a a bottle of vodka and some uh, pickled fish, So uh, pickled herring, I think it was. So coming from Australia, we don't normally uh, eat pickled herring for breakfast, nor do we have vodka for breakfast, but at the time, it was vodka and pickled herring all around, uh, and it's certainly the most memorable breakfast I've ever had. We had that uh, for an hour or so, and then of course we toddled off and gathered some sleep uh, in the hut at Kinvika, so uh, a great way to end a, a very useful 18 hours of science on the uh, best final Ice Cap.
0: How do you think modern polar explorers compare to the likes of Scott and Amundsen and the rest, the early folks that went out there?
1: Uh Look, I think the word that springs to mind is commitment. We go out there now and I describe to you a trip that might go for six or eight weeks and we say that was a committing journey. But um, 100 years ago, you're away for two or three years. You know, that was, uh, that was a huge amount of commitment. So, you know, although we might do it physically hard at times, I really think the level of commitment that we need to give to these expeditions these days is far less than, uh, than our historical peers or colleagues. You know, they—they—that was their life. They immersed themselves, and it was, you know, more likely life or life or death for many of them. So I think we have it far easier, Mike. Uh, I'm very lucky that I can be a polar scientist/slash adventurer explorer without, hopefully, risking my life too much. You know, it's hopeful that I will come back from all of these journeys, but for many of them, that wasn't the case. And as we know, many of them lost their lives in the pursuit of polar glory or science. So. Um, yeah, different era. Uh, sometimes, you know, I say to my wife, oh, if only I was born in the, you know, the golden age of polar exploration." But she says, "Well, that wouldn't be any good because she'd probably be dead by now." So, I think I'm probably lucky to be um, uh, an active polar researcher in this day and age, where I can go and do the science, but hopefully come back to the, you know, the the, uh, the niceties of our modern age. All these
0: experiences that you've had, what life lessons do you think they've taught you?
1: Well, that's a great question, Mike. And I'm very lucky that I teach a first-year engineering course at my university, University of the Sunshine Coast. And if you look at the course outline, it says Introduction to Engineering. But uh, as I say to all of my students uh, on day one, it's not really about engineering. It's about me getting them to understand themselves and why they're doing what they're doing. So life's lessons, look, uh, I think we all need to make time to reflect on who we are and how we best want to spend our time here. How we can, you know, hopefully have a positive influence. And I hate to say it, but I think too many of us we we don't have that opportunity, you know. And I'm very fortunate. I'm privileged. I have the the time, and, or I make the time to reflect on on what I'm doing and what actions or decisions I can make to hopefully use myself uh, more usefully. So. It certainly, uh, it certainly taught me to take time out to reflect, you know, to think strategically about what, what positive role can Adrian McCallum have on the world and how can I achieve that, you know, and hopefully something that's aligned with my strengths so that I can most effectively um, achieve that. Uh, and I think it, it also, with my adventurous training, my expeditions, etc. cetera, it's made me think that we, we can all contribute and we can all dig deep if we're given that opportunity and if we're given that belief. You know, people need people to believe in them and only if people believe in them will they believe sufficiently in themselves. And when they believe sufficiently in themselves, then they'll back themselves and away they go. But I, I think, again, for various reasons, you know, people globally are suppressed. You know, they're not given the opportunity. They're fighting to survive. They, they don't have the the space uh, to, to be able to, think enough about how they might be and to, to enable that, to be empowered to do that. So, you know, perhaps that's what I try to do more broadly as well on my expeditions is to encourage people to say, hey, you can do this. We just need to give you the opportunity to do that. So I believe in you. Believe in yourself. Let's make it happen. Reach out. Yeah.
0: We'll always need scientists that can lace up their boots and get out there and actually see what's out there and confirm what uh, what the science has to say.
1: Definitely, and look, you know, uh, I'm not dead yet, Mike. I'm getting a bit older, of course, as we all are, but uh, I still have a, a list of, I you know, a dozen expeditions on my wall here, which I hope to prosecute at some stage. Just yesterday, I was talking with a group about uh, what we're calling the Last Ice Sentinels expedition, and it's another Arctic expedition that we hope to um, launch next year, and uh, it's gathering, you know, crucial scientific data from the Arctic, especially from multi-year sea ice before it melts. So. Yeah, there's lots of data out there that needs to be acquired before we can no longer acquire it. Uh, As we said, satellites do a great job, but we need to validate the ground truth on the ground by doing our boots up and getting out there. So I want to be one of those scientists who, you know, fortunately is able to get out there and do that. But as we said, I also want to inspire the next generation of adventure scientists to also get out there, gather the data, and hopefully be of use to our humanity.
0: Do you have a set uh, expedition on the books right now?
1: Well, look, I'm, I'm in discussion with uh, quite a few groups at the moment and um, life gets busy. I'm meant to be doing a reconnaissance trip to New Zealand to a couple of glaciers at the end of this year and then I'm hoping to take some students to Nepal and India to uh, look at uh, infrastructure and how we can potentially um, solve some problems of um, limited infrastructure in those environments. And Then I'm hoping to join the uh, last Ice Sentinels expedition to the Arctic in uh, March, April next year. And I'm also with a group who are planning a Greenland crossing next year, a green crossing of Greenland, so doing it in an environmentally friendly manner. And again, that is collecting data from locations in Greenland where we don't have ice thickness data. So we're trying to fill the gaps, fill the void there a bit. So I could talk to you for hours, Mark, unfortunately, about the plans that I have uh, uh, ahead. My wife just glazes over and, and shakes her head when I start talking because she's heard it all before. But, um, look, I'm very lucky. My, my employment allows me to conceive and then ultimately try and prosecute these expeditions for the gathering of unique scientific data. And if I can do that in concert with empowering students and, and youth to, to do the same, hopefully down the track, then it's a very fulfilling life. So I, I'm very fortunate to be in that opportunity.
0: Now, for those folks that are out there listening, especially younger people who may be contemplating an expedition type style life, the life of an adventure scientist, any final thoughts for them?
1: Well, what I say to my first year students is just go for it. You know, grasp at opportunities. As you get older and you get more responsibilities, it gets harder to say yes. So, you know, say yes. Um, you know, the only way that we grow is by putting ourselves into dissimilar opportunities that we haven't seen before, and, and we keep growing and learning. I I say to my first year students, you know, I'm still learning, so I'm here to listen. You know, I just don't know what I might learn from you today. So be open, be inquiring, grasp those opportunities, believe in yourself. You know, reach for the stars, and you just might get there. So um, I'm a firm believer in people and what we're all capable of doing. Mike, yeah.
0: Now, for those people who want to follow you and follow your expeditions, how can they do that?
1: Well, look, I'm 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 somewhat a publicist, but not really a publicist, Mike. So uh, I, I don't have um, a personal web page as such. But um, they're welcome to track me down on LinkedIn or Facebook or any other social media channel. Um, the last Ice Sentinels expedition will have a web page coming up soon, as will the Green Over Greenland expedition uh, in the next little while. So please reach out. And seriously, track me down via your favorite you know, web search engine. I'm very happy to converse with people via email, or whatever, because you know, I like doing what I'm doing, and I want to encourage other people to try and find what they want to do and, and, and make a career of it. So go for it. you know. I believe in you. Let's get out there.
0: Well, thank you for making that offer to people, because I, I hope folks will take that up. There is so much still to see out there, even though people think it's all been seen, all been done, all been tracked but only something to see out there.
1: I agree, Mike. I agree. I think, you know, our, our modern society and our nine-to-five work ethic and environment, we we become a bit too, you know, well, constrained generally in the way we operate. And, uh, and I hope young people especially, before they're caught up in the machine, they take the chance to take a breath, you know, have a think about, you know, their role, their life to come, and uh, grasp those opportunities that might be available, you know. Um, don't necessarily go with the tide believe in themselves and get out there. so yeah there's great opportunities out there. it's just a matter of us believing in ourselves sufficiently to uh, to go and grasp them.
0: Adrian, it's been a pleasure. I hope that uh, I hope that when you come back from your next expedition we can talk again and and hear some more about good science up there in the polar regions.
1: Mike, thank you. It's, it has been a great pleasure. And you've asked some interesting questions that have made me you know, think about things in ways that I haven't thought about before. So uh, it, it's been really nice meeting you. And I very much appreciate you having me on.
0: Nice. Well, we'll see you down the road.
1: Thanks, Mike. Take care.
0: Cheers. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com, where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world.